What you're looking at on the screen is from an organization called Open Doors, which is a group that monitors Christian persecution around the world. They monitor 150 different countries, and then they rank those countries on a scale of 0 to 100 in terms of persecution. And um, so what you're basically seeing here is a picture of the world, and you see the three different You see the way that this is color-coded. The darkest orange is actually where the severest form of persecution is. It's considered what they call extreme. And then you've got an area that they call very high persecution. And then the the lightest orange is what they refer to as high persecution. So what you see on this map are those countries where Open Doors considers to be the, the worst persecution for Christians in the world. It doesn't mean it's the only places where persecution exists. For instance, you notice that the United States is not highlighted at all. There is forms of Christian persecution in the United States, but it's not considered extreme. So this map really shows um, some pretty startling statistics. When you think about, you know, what we see here is about half of the world, at least, covered in, at a minimum, something referred to as high persecution. I'm going to give you some stats here, if you would. This is Open Doors again, 150 different countries that they monitor on a regular basis. Five years ago, only one country was listed as being extreme for Christian persecution. That was five years ago. Anybody know what the country was? China? North Korea. Okay. That was five years ago. Today, there's 11 countries that they've added to that list of extreme. So within five years, they claim that now 11 countries, Christians face extreme persecution. One year ago, just over one-third of the 150 countries, a total of 58, were categorized as either extreme, very high, or high. Okay, So somewhere in that high or worse. There was only 58 countries. Um, that number's risen to 73 today, just one year later. So what does that basically tell us about persecution and the depth of persecution around the world? According to Open Doors and a number of other, uh, even Pew Research, Christian persecution is on the rise, especially um, severe forms of persecution. Last year, it was estimated that one in every 12 Christians globally experienced at least high levels of persecution, meaning they would have fallen in one of these countries on this map that we had seen. Today, that number has risen to one in nine, so it's going up. In Asia and Middle East, it's estimated that one in every three Christians face some form of high, very high or extreme persecution. Globally, that amounts to 245 million Christians that face that kind of extreme or high persecution. Most sources claim that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, facing things like imprisonment, loss of assets, torture, beheadings, rape, death. And that's not just um, open doors, but Pew Research and, and others, even some secular sources, claim that Christians are the highest persecuted religious group in the world. Basically, the numbers break down to this, and this is a conservative estimate. 255 Christians are killed every month around the world. And uh, what Open Doors did with this is they focused only on Christians that were persecuted because of their faith. There are a lot of Christians killed around the world as a result of civil wars and other things. We would not include them in this. Okay, This is only Christians being targeted specifically because of what they believe. And according to their numbers, 255 Christians are killed every month. 104 are abducted, 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage, 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial or imprisoned around the world. Now, the reason these numbers are low is because it's extremely hard in some of these countries to get numbers. 
Um, some of these numbers, to be real frank, um, will be shattered just because of what's happening in China in the last year. China alone has shuttled over 100 churches in the last year, totally destroyed them. Um, just a couple of weekends ago, there was a church that was raided, a fairly large church of about five or 600 Christians that was raided. Over 100 of those Christians were arrested. Many of them were beaten. Some, they don't know where they're at currently. Um, and in China, it's not just Christians, it's also Muslims. There's over a million Muslims in re-education camps in China right now. But, um, like I said, these numbers will be shattered just by what's happening in, in China. Top ten countries where persecution exists doesn't surprise us. At North Korea, there's over 80,000 Christians right now in, in internment camps in North Korea alone. Um, you notice that uh, India, most of these are, notice anything about most of these countries in the middle here? What's the primary religion? Mostly extreme Muslim, Islam, Islam. Um, but notice India down here. Number 11 is China. China is going to be moving up the list here fairly quickly. But um, India um, is... In fact, India and China are home to probably some of the largest born-again Christian populations. Some of the Central American countries are considered much more Christian um, because of the Catholic heritage and stuff. But we wouldn't put them into the evangelical or born-again category. Um, but the largest groups of born-again Christians are the United States, China, India... And um, that's what this persecution primarily focuses on. It doesn't eliminate Christians, it's, or I mean Catholics and others. Um, they try to focus on those who are specifically born again. They would fall into our camp. Let me cover one last thing here, the biggest drivers of persecution. The first one is Islamic extremism. That's the dominant driver of um, attacks against Christians in most of the world today. Primarily the Middle East and Asia. Um, but a growing one is religious and ethnic nationalism. That's actually becoming a very prominent driver of persecution. Let me explain what those are. Um, religious and ethnic nationalism refers to things like what we see here in the West happening now, anti-establishment in the West. What that basically means is when you go against the culture, the dominant culture or society, a perfect example of that here is what's happening to Christians and our views on homosexuality. And I'll cover some of that here in a second. So you'll find that when you don't conform to the expected cultural norms and standards, then you get persecuted. Think about what happened in Rome. That's why the Christians were persecuted in first century Rome. They figured they were a threat to the state, a threat to Rome. Um, you also have um, what's happening in places like China, and that this anti-minorities, religious nationalism, and government insecurity. It's where communist countries want to suppress Christianity because they look at it as being a challenge to authority. Um, if you look at what's happening in China right now, um, the unregistered churches, they call them, that they're tearing apart, they're destroying, arresting Christians, um, church members, they're monitoring registered churches. In fact, in, in China, parts of China right now, as a pastor, you have to have your sermons approved to be able to preach them, to make sure it's the correct topic. Um, China is actually having produced its own version of the Christian Bible for their registered churches. Well, what do you suppose they're going to do with that? Take out stuff they don't want. You cannot buy a Bible online now in China. They're forbidden. They're illegal. And so that would fall into this category of religious and ethnic nationalism. It's what's good for the state, what's good for the nation. And Christians are not good for the nation. Christians are not good for the state. That's the mentality. Um, and again, in a place like China, Muslims are also treated the same way as Christians are. 
So it's not just us that are being persecuted, but but overall, if you look at Christianity around the world, it is the most persecuted um, religious group in the world at this point. Let me give you some examples here in the United States just to kind of... We have to be careful, I think, here with the United States because when we talk about being persecuted, I think we have to have to keep in mind or remember that what we face might be a loss of rights. I'm going to put it in the category of persecution, even though it's probably the mildest form of persecution. And when you consider what happens to our brothers and sisters around the world, and when we, when we whine and complain about being persecuted here, sometimes it might come across as being a little petty because of what our brothers and sisters in Christ face all over the world. When I've seen some of the pictures coming out of China from some of the people that have been arrested with the bruises and the marks on their bodies because of being detained and beaten and whatnot, when I hear about some of what happens in um, Korea, um, radically different. But that does not mean that we don't face a form of persecution here. Let me just read you some stuff um, just, just briefly here. Um, we know that we're facing quite a bit when it comes to um, the whole homosexual agenda and all of that and how Christians are treated as a result of that. You all know who Jack Phillips is. He was the baker in Denver who was asked to create a wedding cake for a gay couple. This was a gay couple that had been in and out of his shop, had bought, purchased cakes from him before just not to celebrate their wedding. Well, he denied making them a cake for the wedding, and you know what happened to him. He was basically charged by the state, you know, lots of lawsuits. It ultimately went to the Supreme Court, and he was exonerated to some degree, but it, it basically crushed his business. He lost about 40% of his business. Well, just recently, even after all that, another transgender couple, if I remember, or transgender individual, tried to get him to do the same thing, and this city went after him again and that was just yep so he was specifically targeted and the city went after him again even though the city had lost well that was just thrown out so he's been exonerated once again another another group a couple elaine and jonathan Hugan were forced by the court in New Mexico to pay more than $6,000 in fines in 2012 after they declined um, to photograph a lesbian wedding um, the University of Toledo fired one of its staff members when she disagreed with the idea that gay marriage was a civil rights issue. Um, in 2013, the state of Oregon went into, the, into a little tiny bakery, and they, um, the bakery itself had de- decided to not provide a cake for a lesbian wedding. The state of Oregon fined them, going as, to far, or going as far as to garnish their bank accounts, taking over $144,000 from this couple, claiming that they had violated laws of the city. The bakery had to ultimately close their doors. In 2013, Crisis Magazine reported that the anti-Christian campaigns had spread to a place or spread to the city of Vermont or state of Vermont. Again, a lesbian couple sued the Wildflower Inn under the state public accommodations law, being told that they could um, not exclude homosexual couples from using their, their facility to perform their ceremonies. I could go on and on. There's, I don't necessarily need to with that. But what you find is that stuff like this, where Christians are being told, your values and your rights cannot be exercised by you. You must perform 
you know, this ceremony. You must provide cakes. You must provide photography. You must do this for those that, you know, have different values than you do. We find now that um, InterVarsity and other Christian organizations have been kicked off campuses because they refuse to allow non-Christians to be in their leadership positions or because of their positions on homosexuality. We find um, there's a story not too long ago where a professor of a college course basically flunked all the Christians in the class because they refused to accept his viewpoint on a particular topic. Um, another instance of a professor who made all the students draw a picture or draw the word Jesus on a piece of paper and then stomp on it. And those that didn't stomp on it, their grades were reduced in the class. Just this last week, you had a little boy that showed up at class with a ash cross on his forehead from Ash Wednesday. The teacher made him wash it off because it was offensive to those in the class. We could go on and on and on, but that's a form of persecution happening here in the United States. And that's just the beginnings of it, and it is getting worse. So while we have to be careful that we don't complain too loudly when we think of our persecution here compared to what happens to so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, it doesn't mean that we should ignore it, and it doesn't mean that it's not persecution. In fact, the Washington Post not too long ago published a story basically saying Christians are not persecuted here, they're all delusional. Well, that's not true. We are. Just maybe not like we, our brothers and sisters are on the rest of the world. Why do I bring all this up? Why do I share this um, rather dark and gloomy, these dark and gloomy statistics? Well, it has something to do with our passage today. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Mark chapter 6. Mark continues on his quest to show that Jesus Christ is Messiah with two events. He does it in a rather unusual way. He chooses an, an instance. These, these two instances are, are separated by an indefinite period of time. We don't really know what the time is, but remember how Mark will take two events and he kind of puts them together for us? He doesn't always treat them chronologically. He doesn't always treat them one after the other. He rather groups them thematically. And these two, path, or these two events that he walks us through today are put together, or brought together because of a single theme. The first one is Jesus' rejection by his own people. The second is the mission of the disciples and the persecution that they will face as a result. And so these two things both have to do with persecution. And this persecution actually is an evidence that Mark provides to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In other words, if I can say it succinctly, the fact that Jesus Christ was persecuted just like Isaiah and other prophets of the Old Testament had claimed the Messiah would be, is a proof that he's the Messiah. The fact that he would be persecuted the way that he was. But in the same way, the fact that his disciples will also be persecuted, will also be treated the same way, is also further evidence that Christ is the Messiah. Does that make sense? Persecution is one of the proofs that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Both his persecution and the persecution of his followers. And so Mark is going to do that for us today. Look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his own hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph, or Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives 
and in his own household. And he could not do miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. After spending the past few months teaching and ministering around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus travels back to his hometown of Nazareth with his disciples. We would think that he would receive a warm welcome. You know, I think about um, when I was in seminary, I would go back to Wausau, Wisconsin, the church that was paying for part of my seminary, and my pastor or mentor was there, and the family that I lived with before going to seminary was there, and um, I would show up, and in some respects, I felt like a rock star. Everybody was happy to see me. You know, people would come up and hand me money because it would help pay for seminary. Um, I'd get asked to speak while I was there. Everybody wanted to see me, so I'd get invited over to dinner, and I only had so much time, and so at times I had to tell people, I, I can't, I'm, I'm book solid. They were all happy to see me. I never faced any disdain when I walked in. People didn't roll their eyes and say, oh, there's Mike again. Well, Except for... Not like today. Not like today. <laughs> yeah. You go home, and that's kind of the way it's supposed to be, right? Everybody wants to see you, you know? Um, Amy's made some, I think, just a couple of trips in her time where they, her and her college friends met at Taylor. I think we went out there one time for that, and everybody's happy to be there, you know? Um, when we all go back to Green Bay for Christmas, and all the cousins are together, and my siblings are there, everybody's happy to be there. So you might expect that with Jesus here, but he faces something radically different. Now, the last time Jesus was in Nazareth, one year before this trip, the people tried to kill him. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his custom. He entered the synagogue of the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and to recover the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. That's what they would say to him on the cross. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth... There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up three years and six months when a great famine came over the land and yet I, Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and there was many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things and they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill in which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So the first time he was in a synagogue, they tried to kill him. So maybe we shouldn't have expected Jesus to get a warm welcome coming back here. Even though, again, this was his family, his hometown, his brothers and sisters, his cousins, aunts and uncles, friends. 
But if you remember, Market shared with us here back in chapter 3 that his family thought he was nuts. They thought he was out of his mind. In fact, they even sent to get him and to bring him back. The way the text described it is ultimately to shut him up. So Jesus returns to Nazareth once again. We find him teaching in the synagogues only to be rejected for a second time. Notice how it starts. They were astonished, it says. This way it's described in the Greek is that they were continually astonished. They were marveling at the things that he was teaching. The content was good. They were astonished by it. If you look at chapter 6, verse 2, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands, they were marveling at him. But then, look at what happens. Their astonishment soon gave way to being offended. The first thing they say is, is this not the carpenter? Now that, being a carpenter, wasn't necessarily a derogatory thing. However, in this particular instance and context here, it is. Because what they're basically claiming is, this man is here teaching in the synagogue, but what does he have to say? He's a mere carpenter. It's kind of like when Dustin gets up to teach here. You know? A mere architect, right? Is that what you say? Some of you might be offended that he doesn't have the initials after his name like I do, right? Well, we know that's not true. Dustin's a good teacher, handles the word well. But some might say, well, he's not qualified to teach. He didn't go to school for it. You know, folks, I'll tell you this, seminary probably destroys as many people as it does build up, depending on where you go depending on what they teach. So just having the letters after your name doesn't make you a teacher. But they were offended in, because he wasn't trained in the best schools with the best rabbis. He was just this mere carpenter. They also say, is not he the son of Mary? Now what's interesting about that, if you remember the first time he went into the city, they were astonished and they said, oh, this is the son of Joseph. Why do they now change it to, isn't this the son of Mary? Well, the reason was, most of the time, even after a father had died, his children were always referred to by his name. But in this case, they only refer to his Mary, likely a reference to the illegitimacy of his birth. In fact, we know that elsewhere, they specifically accuse him of this. John chapter 8, verse 41 says, Hey, we weren't born of fornication, buddy. We weren't born out of wedlock. So they're offended at the fact that he's a carpenter and not trained. They're offended by the fact that he was, in their mind, illegitimate. They were also offended by something else. Notice that they say that he's the brother of James and Josie or Joseph. Mentions that his sisters, they're all here with us. What do you suppose that is? It's a way of basically saying Jesus is just a common man like the rest of us. Why should we listen to him? He's just got brothers and sisters like the rest of us. His sisters are here with us. He's just like us. What right does he have to get up and say the things that he's saying? You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of sometimes when we have um, brothers and sisters or family members or we have friends that go off and become extremely successful and maybe we're not so, so successful. Do we resent them for it sometimes? Maybe not us specifically, but you see that. 
I've seen within some poor communities when somebody rises above and wants to go beyond the borders of that community, they get ridiculed. What's wrong with being here like the rest of us? You all high and mighty because you want to go make something of yourself. Think about within the black community. I remember when Barack Obama was elected president, there were some in the black community that ridiculed that because you become too white. I saw recently this week that um, Will Smith um, is in a new movie and some within the black community are, are basically calling that out, saying they need a, a different black person there because Will Smith, being as successful as he is now and everything else, um, is too white. You know, sometimes we're offended when those just like us go off to do either great thing. In this case, here's Jesus coming back speaking with authority. They don't necessarily have a problem with the content because they're astonished by it. They're, they even call it, where does this wisdom come from? But when they reflect upon the fact that, well, this is just Jesus, we kind of grew up with him, they're all offended by it. So they can't get past the messenger to accept the message. In some respects, it was their familiarity with Jesus that blinded them to the truth of who he was. So look what happens in verse 4. Jesus says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Basically he's saying, I'm honored everywhere else except here when you, with you people that know me the best. Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? For those of you that might not be familiar with that term or may have heard it and not quite understand it, it means that familiarity or close association with somebody or something can sometimes lead to a loss of respect for it. Many cultures from around the world have proverbs that convey this concept as far back as we can go. We've got a perfect example of that with the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He was probably the most persecuted prophet in all of the Old Testament, and most of it came from his own people. He was constantly cursed. He was beaten multiple times, tossed into prison time and time again, and it was all by his own people. The very people he went to preach to persecuted him for it. So here Jesus is going to his own people, and he's being dishonest or being dishonored and rejected. Look at what happens in verse six and seven. The measure of their unbelief caused even Jesus to marvel at it. Verses six and seven. We'll go with verse five. And he could do no miracle there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered or marveled at their unbelief. Marveled at their unbelief. Even Jesus was somewhat taken aback, if you will, by the dishonor that they showed him. You know, it's probably not technically true that Jesus couldn't perform miracles there. But what was standing in the way of Jesus doing miracles here? What have we seen in other places? What has Jesus told others when they were healed? Your what has made you well? Your faith. So why couldn't Jesus do miracles here? The lack of faith. The few people that did express faith, he did heal. But the rest were so without faith, so offended by him that they could not see past the messenger and see the message. 
this idea of wonder here reflects amazement or marveling at something. So again, it's the picture Mark is trying to portray here is one of Jesus even marveling or being somewhat surprised at the depth of their resentment, the depth of their unbelief. Matthew adds something a little bit more. It says this in Matthew chapter 9. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So even though Jesus marveled at their unbelief, there was still the compassion in his heart, the desire to save. And he looked at them and thought, they're just like sheep that have no shepherd wandering around. What we see here is just a foreshadowing, because we ultimately know what happens in the end. The crowd, made up of Jews, is shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify. So what we see here is just simply a foreshadowing of what's ultimately going to come. And remember, Mark has Jesus on a journey from Galilee to the cross. So all this does, it's a literary tool to show... This is a small sampling of what Jesus is ultimately going to face. His own people, the Jewish nation, will ultimately reject him and demand his death on the cross. And they're so offended by him that they would much rather have a murderer released out into society. So the first example that we see here is one of Jesus' own persecution and rejection. The second one has to do with us, has to do with his disciples. Look at uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Let me read this for you. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority all, over all the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter, where, yeah, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They then went out and preached the gospel, or preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Jump down to verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. So basically what we find now is Jesus sends out the twelve. But you notice within that he also warns them that they're going to face rejection. He doesn't mention persecution here specifically, but he does mention their rejection. He tells them exactly what to do when they go into a city and that city rejects them. We'll touch base on that as we go through this. But you notice that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples that he's going to make them fishers of men. That's their mission. This is where it kicks off. He now tells them, go out. And so he sends them out. says, two by two. Notice that um, in doing so, it probably matches the Old Testament idea that it takes two or three witnesses to corroborate a truth. And so he sends them out, two by two, if you will. Dustin and I talked about that a little bit last night. Sends them out two by two, partly to corroborate their witness. Notice also that they were supposed to preach the same exact thing that Jesus preached. Look at verse 7. It says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over all the unclean spirits and instructed them that they should take nothing with them on their journey. So he sends them out. He says a little bit later in verse 12, why don't you jump down there with me, 
they went out and preached that men should repent. Remember, Jesus' message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So they're going out and they're preaching that men should repent. Matthew actually adds that they were to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. So it matches. They were to simply go off and carry out Jesus' preaching as well. They were also, notice, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. That serves, I think, as Jesus' an extension or an expression of Christ's compassion, and it was to validate what they were to do. So what you find here is that they were to go out just like Jesus had, to preach the same message that he preached, to have the same kind of compassion he had. They were to heal the sick. They were to cast out demons, take care of the poor, if you will. Verse 8 says that they weren't to take any bread or bag or money in their belt. Why do you suppose that is? Probably has to do with faith. They're going to rely completely on God to provide for them as they go out. They were also supposed to rely on the hospitality of those who would welcome them. If you look at verse 10 again, it says, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. So they were to find a home, and as long as those people welcomed them, they were supposed to stay there and conduct their ministry from that location. And this is where he then kind of lays out the rejection that they would face. Verse 11, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. In Jesus' day, when the Jews would walk through a Gentile area, when they would exit that Gentile region, they would take off their sandals and they would shake the dust off their sandals. And it was a way of basically, in some respects, saying, I just walked through a filthy area. It was a a form of judgment, if you will. And so Jesus uses that here and by saying, basically, to knock the dust off their soles of their feet, that was a way of expressing judgment. Basically, he's saying, any of those that reject you and your message reject me. So as you leave, as a sign of my judgment against them, shake the dust off your feet. And a Jew would have understood that. Would have seen that as an example of judgment. And so what we find here is that Jesus does give them a glimpse. The fact that there will be some that will not welcome them. There will be places they go where they will not appreciate them. And what's interesting about this is we're told elsewhere that they were specifically only to go to Jewish regions. So just like Jesus being rejected by his own people, these disciples are only going into Jewish areas where they should be accepted, partly because they're Jews, but partly because they're preaching Messiah. So just like Jesus, they would be rejected by their own people. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Because we get a much bigger picture of what Jesus actually taught. Mark scales down some of it. Doesn't always provide all the details. But we get a bigger picture of what Jesus told them. And this is why I'm convinced that that little statement in Mark about um, places rejecting them, it was a much longer discussion that Jesus had with them and it had to do with persecution. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, we're going to read quite a chunk here, but this is the same discussion. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in the hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whoever they persecute, or I'm sorry, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For you truly, for I truly say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebub, that's Jesus, how much more likely will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And not two sparrows sold for a cent, or are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found this li- or his life will lose it, and he who lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of, dis- of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward." That was the full discussion that Jesus had in the one verse we see in Mark. So what did Jesus say to the disciples? When he sent them out, he said, Look, just like they persecuted me in Nazareth, just as they tried to throw me over a hill, just as my own family rejected me, I am sending you out as wolves, or as sheep amongst wolves. And just as they persecuted your master, me, they will persecute you as well. Because a disciple is not greater than his master. A slave is not greater than his master. Just as I'm persecuted, you will be as well. And so in the context of the book of Mark, that persecution that Jesus warned his disciples about, one of the reasons Mark includes it here is because He's trying to portray, again, and show Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And both Isaiah in chapter 53 and Psalm chapter 22 indicate that the Messiah is going to be persecuted. He is going to be hurt by his own family. Ultimately, he will suffer, die, at the hands of his own people. 
And so Mark takes that persecution, the example of that for Christ, then takes the example of the persecution of Christ's followers, and he uses that now as part of his argument that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. So think about that for just a moment here. When we look at the map that we had up before, why is it that that map was as colorful as it was? Why is it that Christians are certainly one of the most, by some accounts, the most persecuted religious group in the world? Why is it that that persecution is increasing around the world and at an alarming rate? Christians have been persecuted since the first century. It started with Jesus, didn't it? All 12 of his disciples were martyred, if you include Paul in that instead of Judas. For the first couple of hundred years, Christianity was outlawed in much of the Roman Empire. It wasn't until Augustine. Why is it? Why is it that in the United States right now, one of the most Christianized nations in the world is now seeing pushback? Why is it that Christians are being considered bigots, hate mongers, all because they're standing up for righteousness? Why is it that others are able to exercise their convictions, but Christians are being told it's not right for you? Why is it that kids in schools today, when they want to start Christian Bible clubs, can't get a teacher to sponsor their group, but yet other groups that promote other ideology can get teachers to sponsor their group. Why is it that a football coach can't even pray on his own on a football field because it might offend some? Why is that? Well, according to what Mark has been trying to demonstrate today, that's evidence that proves that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. The fact that we suffer along with him, that we face persecution, that Christian brothers and sisters all over the world face persecution, is evidence. Because Jesus said, they're going to hate me. And why is that? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, does it not? The enemy and God's enemies absolutely hate him. When you think about it, Christians are probably the best citizens in most societies because we want to obey the laws. Our own scriptures tell us to submit to authorities. We're told to turn the other cheek. Why in the world would we be offensive to anybody? If you think about the way that most Christians, I won't say all Christians because sometimes we don't behave right, but we're supposed to be generous. And gracious. Think about just the United States alone. Most hospitals were started by Christian churches. The public school system was started by Christians. So many of the charitable organizations, food pantries, missions, all started by who? Christians. All the evidence is that you want the Christian living next door because he's going to take care of the house, right? But instead, what do we get? It's all because they hate us because they're the enemy of God. And so when I look at this passage from from Mark, I honestly believe that what Mark is trying to do is to use this as evidence to prove his point that Christ is the Messiah. 
And so he gives us two examples. Christ saying, I'm going to be persecuted. And it's because of what he represents. God, in the flesh. And God's enemies will hate him. But likewise, he warns his disciples, you're going to face the same thing. But he also tells us not to lose heart. I love the fact that Matthew tells us, don't worry about what you're going to say, because this is going to be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. I love the letter that came out a couple months ago from the pastor of, the, of one of the biggest churches in this particular region in China, five or six hundred um, people. All, they were all, basically the church was ransacked by the Chinese government. A bunch of, about 100, 150 people from the church were arrested. People didn't know where they were. And the pastor, right before they, the authorities came to his house and took him captive, he wrote a letter to all of his followers. And boy, it was filled with joy, encouragement, um, but he encouraged them to stand firm. He, he talked about not compromising. Basically, this is what we were called to. God gave him the right thing to say at a very difficult time. I'm convinced of that. Because you cannot have that kind of joy, that kind of encouragement, when you're facing the kind of stuff that he was facing. That comes from one place and one place only. The Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what it promises us here. So I hope that as I share some of this stuff today, that it doesn't become too discouraging but we've got to be real, folks. The reality of it is that we will be persecuted. Maybe we won't be persecuted in our lifetime like our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted, but maybe we will be. But if anything, that should, in some respects, encourage us because it tells us we're on the right side. It really does. It tells us we're on the right side. We've been going through First Peter um, in our men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, and it's a group of people that have been scattered. They're in what's called the diaspora. They were run out of Jerusalem because they couldn't stay there anymore because of the persecution. And Peter's encouragement to them is to focus their, their faith and their picture on Christ and the inheritance we receive. He says, the trials you're going through now don't even compare to the inheritance you receive in the end. So the persecution actually is the evidence that we're on the right side. It's the evidence that the one we serve, Jesus Christ, is exactly who he claimed to be, Messiah and Savior.